This is a series we've been doing. This is uh, now the 46th lesson in the series. Uh, we are uh, on for the 26th week. We are on element five. And if you look at Roman numeral one on your outline, there's the list of all eight of the elements with uh, a zero listed for three or four weeks that we did of concepts as to why we're doing this series. Then today, today we're calling the title Element 5Z, The Ministry of Jesus, The Present Reign of Christ, and The Purpose of Pentecost. Now, I had very much hoped to end uh, this Element 5 on Christology at Z so that we wouldn't have to uh, figure out some creative way to go beyond 26. But I got to do one more week. So it's going to be next week is going to be Element 5 number sign. <laughs> and then I promise we're, we're going to be done with uh, Element 5. Christology. Now, uh, you can look for yourself at the things we covered in the first uh, four weeks. In Element 5, we've been covering a subject in theology that's called Christology, the study of Christ. And uh, the reason for that is because uh, Paul says there's one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is no other way, as the, the apostles declared in the book of Acts, there is no other name under heaven whereby we must be saved. And as we pointed out last week and many weeks in this series, it always gets down to who do you say that I am? That's the bottom line in life is who is your conception of God and who is your conception of Jesus Christ in the Trinity? And so um, we looked for eight weeks at the typical things that would be studied in, in Christology today. And then we've now been looking for, do the math right, I guess now this will be uh, about eight, the 18th week or so of looking at the ministry of Jesus, which is, tends to be neglected, at least in terms of studying Christology. Now, jumping down to Roman numeral four on your outline, about halfway down the first page, uh, we're going to look at the present reign of Christ today and the purposes of Pentecost. You may recall that last week we looked at the promises of Pentecost, and we looked at the phrase, the promise, all through the Bible. A major topic of both Testament the promises of God. And uh, so um, before we get into this today, just by way of reminder, in case anybody's like, you know, 26 weeks just on, on Christology, the Bible says to consider Jesus. And so I thought I would uh, look at that for just a minute here. Um, really, because what I'm always hoping, when I'm, when I'm teaching what I'm really wanting to do is give you the tools, give you the seed form to get more out of your own biblical studies, and hopefully provoke you to hours and hours of being alone with God, searching the scriptures. I mean, that is my hope as a pastor, because really I'm kind of selfish. The more people read the Bible and get founded in the things of the Lord, the easier my job becomes in your life. So I'm really just trying to get a vacation in. You know, eventually, if everyone gets in, on fire for reading the Word, I'll be able to take a vacation. So, uh, which uh, we're going to take this summer for the first time in 16 years, uh, whether we like it or not. But uh, anyway, so I love Hebrews 3.1 that says, Therefore, holy brethren, did you know you're a holy brethren? Uh, Partakers of a heavenly calling, uh, that's a whole issue in, in uh, what we call biblically complete conversions. Most people are converted to something that doesn't involve a calling to community and to missional community and to be a part of, of Christ's continuing ministry in the earth. 
but you're not, you haven't really received a full gospel till you have a deep sense that he's called you uh, to be a part of his, his ongoing purposes in the earth. Anyway, uh, partakers of a heavenly calling consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. Now that word consider is katana'a, let me see if I got it right, katana'a'o, and it means to perceive, observe, understand, consider attentively. In other words, pay attention. Reminds me of uh, that cartoon character in the Warner Brothers. Remember Foghorn, Leghorn? who was actually based, the character was based on a real Louisiana center that was kind of a blowhard. Remember Foghorn, Leghorn was always, uh, uh, you know, kind of trying to disciple the chicken hawk. And he's like, pay attention to me, boy, pay attention to me, boy. So, uh, you know, it's saying pay attention to. Be painstakingly absorbed and think about. Spend time meditating on it. This should be a priority in your life. You should shut off the television. You should unplug from the electronic world. You should find a place to consider Jesus. So that's why I'm, I've done 26 weeks on just things that would get you started thinking about Jesus. Um. It means to fix one's eyes or mind upon. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, as a result of everything he said in the first 11 chapters, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance in the sin which so easily entangles us. Anybody can relate to that phrase? And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. What do you put your eyes on? You know, the, in 1 John it says, don't love the world, uh, the, the, and it calls the loving of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. What do you like to behold? And he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. The initiator, some translations say, author, perfecter, or finisher, some translations say, of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, his present reign, that gets into the theme we're getting into today. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, that so you will not grow weary and lose heart. And again, uh, that word for fixing our eyes is actually aphorao, and it means to turn your eyes away from one thing and put your eyes on another thing. Many of us could use a lot of thinking about what we need to turn our eyes away from. Because the eye is the gateway to your soul, and your soul contains, your, where your soul and your spirit meets contains your heart, your affections. Jonathan Edwards used to call it the religious affections. What do you really love? The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. You, you show me your schedule planner, and if I get to listen to, uh, to you talk for a day, I will know what you love. What do we talk about when we're gathered together? I had such a great time at our Easter dinner. There were four couples from the church there, and uh, John and Emily hosted it with our uh, Jason and Carla and my and Chris and Amanda and so forth. And uh, we had, you know, we started out with singing a song and reading a hymn and meditating on Scripture. But the the greatest part of the evening for me was everyone else went home except Greg and Catherine, who probably overstayed our welcome by an hour or so, and sat around the living room, which. 
John and Emily, and I just questioned John about theology. I don't know about you, when I get around someone who knows more about biblical studies and theology, I just love to sit there and ask questions. And, you know, John helped me understand a number of biblical things and a number of theological things, which he often does. What, what do you spend your time on? So, anyway, that's enough of an exhortation. 26 weeks, I would really encourage you to revisit all the subjects that we've looked at. They're all on the podcast. The outlines are available at the end of this outline. There's uh, Stephen Leopold's email. If you want one, if you're missing any, if you're missing any of the outlines, send an email to Stephen, and he'll email it to you. So, thank you, Stephen, uh, for volunteering. <laughs> all right. So, I decided to change that because I can't even keep up with my email. All right, so let's get into today's message. The ministry of Christ, his present reign. I really don't have time to do this subject justice, so I'm, again, just going to introduce it to you in seed form. Please develop it. Because um, the, the, the next part, the, prom, the purposes of Pentecost are inextricably intertwined with his present reign. That's because in the, in the scriptures... Whenever a priest was anointed, and whenever a king was anointed, they poured oil upon the head, and it ran down the beard and down the robe, down through their feet to the ground below, signifying that God was giving them by the Holy Spirit the, anoint, the wisdom, the power, uh, the insight, the motivation, the right attitudes, everything needed to roll over that sphere where the, their feet treaded. And if you care to look at it as a Bible study, Romans 16, 20, Joshua 1, 8, everywhere that your feet tread shall I give to you. Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. You're supposed to uh, be actually reigning in life wherever God sends you. Do you realize that when you're in the supermarket line, you know, a lot of people think it's weird that I tip 40 and 50 and 60%. Do you know Why? Because the waitress has heard us talking about Jesus the whole time we're sitting there. And she already thinks that Christians are cheap and that God is cheap. Or he thinks that, in case of a waiter. Believe me. Um, anyway, so let's get into this whole thing of the present reign of Christ. It's, uh, and again, it's inextricably intertwined with the concept that his ministry continues. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Luke 1, 32 and 33 is a verse that many of us read during the Advent season of the year. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and his kingdom will have no end. Now that should make you think of a couple things, hopefully. Hopefully you realize that he's, when he's saying that, he's actually referring to Isaiah 9-7, which we always read at Advent. All Christians read it at Advent. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. Is that your vision for what the church is supposed to be? 
Is that your version, vision for what, or is your vision that there will be increasing darkness and there will be only a little remnant and hiding in a corner and we're, of course, the only ones that got it right and, uh, and all that kind of stuff. There will be no end to the increase of his government or his peace. Guess where he reigns? He reigns everywhere on, of all things. But in a certain sense, uh, there's those who he reigns over without their knowledge, and there's those who he reigns for, over who are seeking his reign. They're supposedly called Christians, that, uh, and they're supposedly the church. Now, um, hopefully, hopefully you, you kind of understand that that's what Luke is actually getting to when he, when he says what he says. Now, this whole comment of he will reign over the house of Jacob, that should also make you think of what we talked about last week with the whole message on the promises of God. Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made before. And so forth. Uh, Joel 2, 28 It'll come about in the last times that I'll pour my spirit out upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, and the church will no longer be a nonprofit organization, and uh, and the and prophets won't be limited to uh, just the uh, a few priests and a few sons of the prophets and a few kings, but all of God's people will be anointed by the Holy Spirit to speak His word on His behalf by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what you're called to when you're converted to Christ. Hopefully this all makes you think of this. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 28. I wish I could read the whole passage. Uh, please note I only put what I can fit on the front and back of, uh, of, as my kind of rule. But read the whole passage in context for some time. But I'm, I'm, you know, I, out of there I lifted verse 25. For he must reign until... He has put all his enemies beneath his feet. Now, let's think of let's that should make you think of several verses again. Acts 3:19 through 21 says to repent and return to the Lord in order that times of refreshing may come about from the presence of God and that God may send Jesus to you appointed for you. who must reign and sit at the Father's right hand until the restoration of all things. Guess what? The modern eschatologies that are a retreat back to what the scribes and the Pharisees thought and what the people of Israel thought before Christ came, and we've returned to those in the late 1800s with the, you know, with the invention of pessimillennialism, um, it, it is not what the Bible is teaching. It's not teaching that, it, that his reign is going to decrease, and then because he can't get it, conquer the hearts of men and, and establish his kingdom, he's going to come in some cataclysmic, for, forceful, geographical, conquer the Romans and kick him out of here kind of way. His reign is going to steadily increase until all his enemies are a footstool for his feet. Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. His feet 
how blessed are the feet of him who brings glad tidings of good news, Isaiah 40 and so forth. His feet are us, the body of Christ. Now, I'm not trying to preach some kind of view of dominion where we're going to take over everything exactly militarily and politically and so forth, because the, the saints were reigning during the persecutions of Nero all the way through Diocletian when they're being killed and staying faithful to their witness to Jesus Christ. So the Bible's view of reigning, just like the Bible's view of leadership, is, is a different kind of reigning. But, you know, you're going to reign over your sin. You're going to, uh, we're going to reign together, and, uh, and we're going to testify and witness to the whole world of the current reign of Jesus Christ. He's Lord and King. You can either bow the knee now or later, but you will. So why not get on the right side of history? Psalm 2, why not kiss the son, lest he become angry? So Matthew 28, 18, he, Jesus said, a little bit of authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Wait a minute. <laughs> That's the modern translation. All authority is given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make decisions with altar calls with a sort of watered-down sinner's prayer kind of concept. Because all authority, teach, disciple people on how to sit at my feet, listen to my word, and live under my reign. To become people of the book. And because of the promises of the new covenant, the book will be written on their heart from the inside out, and they'll be empowered to do it. Don't think I came to abolish the law, but I came to put it in the force. I came to write it on your heart and give you the power to live it. That's what it means to not be under law, but be under grace. No one can say Jesus is accursed except uh, uh, no one can, who's speaking by the Spirit of God, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of God. That's how you know if what they're teaching about the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, and so forth, look for, do they see Jesus as Lord in like small print? Or is there a community of believers that sees Jesus as Lord? I mean Lord. I mean Lord. Do we understand that he doesn't just reign over the spiritual parts of life? He doesn't just reign over those who want him to reign. He doesn't just reign... Uh, in the nations that are more Christian. As Acts 17 says, he raises up nations and tears down nations and appoints their boundaries according to his ongoing purpose. And his ongoing purpose is that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the seas. And all of that means the Lord will sit at my right hand until that happens. That's what Acts 3.19 and 21 is saying. Psalm 110, if you think it's some minor little point, it's the most often quoted psalm of the whole Bible by far. It's alluded to probably seven or eight times in the New Testament after you get past the seven or eight times that it's specifically quoted. All right, so let's just, you know, I don't have a lot to, a time to develop this subject, but I really encourage you to uh, just consider, uh, you know, it's, I, there's an old joke for pastors when 
you ask someone how they're doing and they say, well, I'm doing okay under the circumstances. And then you, uh, of course, if we were less loving, depends on, well, depends on how you, how you say it. But, you know, you, it's like, what are you doing under the circumstances? You know, there's grace in Christ to, you know, it, you know what, what our expectations have become of being a Christian is I pray a sinner's prayer and I go, God, and I have some lesser view of God in my heart and mind. I'm a sinner. And what I mean by that is I've made a few mistakes or miscalculations, but I'm basically a pretty good person and uh, better than most people. Do you know 80% of people surveyed think they're morally superior to other people? <laughs> I don't think that math works. I'm not a great mathematician or philosopher of math, but I'm pretty sure that's not good math. Uh, it, you know... I, I, you know, Lord, I'm a sinner. Come into my life, which we mean like get in the car, but stay in the back seat. Don't even think about driving here. I'm still driving, and I'll cry out to you whenever I wreck up the car or get a speeding ticket or when I meet Officer Diaz. <laughs> but uh, my buddy. All right, so. You know, think about the reign of Christ. That's a primary purpose of why God brought the Holy Spirit to you. And therefore, that's a good segue into our purposes of Pentecost, which is on the back part of the sheet. I am not seeing very well because that one light. Okay. So um, let's get into this purposes of Pentecost. Forgot to change my glasses. Now, Jesus himself, before Pentecost tells us of the coming of Pentecost in three primary areas of, of Scripture. Okay, so that's kind of important. One of the reasons that's kind of important is because uh, of the concept of what I call first, second, and third attestations. There's kind of a concept that uh, one of the things Jesus does a lot is he repeats himself at least three times on a lot of important subjects. Thank you. So um, so this is kind of important because there's three different key places where Jesus tells us that he's going to send the Holy Spirit after he's glorified and that the Holy Spirit is going to continue his ministry until he comes again. So let's look at those portions uh, here as, as, our, as our way of doing the purposes of Pentecost. All right, so the first one is in John 7, 37 through 39. In the context, you need to read the whole chapter, but the context is that is at the Feast of Booths. It's kind of an interesting chapter because it says Jesus' brothers weren't even believing in him. So they said, are you going to the feast? And he told them he wasn't going. <laughs> but then he went. Deal with it. Uh, <laughs> so... Uh, some people would have problems with that. So on the last day of the great feast, now, so just so you understand, the Feast of Booths went for eight days, and the last day was considered the great day. Because in the Bible, eight is one. The eighth day of the week is the first day of the week, and the number eight is always the number one, and it has to do with the coming of the new heavens and the new earth and the new creation. God rested on the seventh day in the old creation, 
on the new day, on the new creation, the Lord's day, he rose on the first day of the week. He appeared to the disciples. Most of the appearances of Christ after the resurrection are on the first day of the week. And Pentecost is on the first day of the week. And that's why the Christians made the first day of the week the Lord's day. And they considered it a very, very important thing. You didn't just go to church 40 out of 50 Sundays a year when your kid's basketball team didn't have a game, didn't have a game or when they didn't have a Tupperware party or something. Um, Something really important. So, on the eighth day of the Feast of Booths, there was a very sacred day. It was the high day of the festival. It was like the end, the culmination of the party. And guess how they celebrated it? Anybody know? They read the entire law of Moses. Now, that sounds like a pretty good party, right? Let's get together, have hors d'oeuvres, snacks, chicken wings, and... Uh, <laughs> And uh, read the scriptures, right? That was the high point of the festival. They read the law of Moses. And uh, so, and it signified and foreshadowed that we are sojourners in the earth and that the, is, the, the, reason, the reason God had three different festivals, the Feast of Booths was the third one, was to remind them that they had traveled in the wilderness for a, for a whole generation and that we are always sojourners in this earth. We really have no place to lay our head. Remember when this guy said, I'll follow Jesus? He said, really? I've got no place to lay my head. I don't even own a house. So, not that you shouldn't own a house. Uh, temporarily. But it, the Feast of Booths commemorated that we are always pilgrims in this life. And God is writing his law upon our hearts and our minds. It's a process after conversion called sanctification. And it, it will be ongoing until you go to be with the Lord. 1 John 3 says, We know that when we see him, we shall be like him. And anyone who has this hope purifies himself as he is pure. If you're having uh, promise, if you're having problems with issues of sanctification, don't just say, well, I'm going to start, I'm going to quit eating so much, and I'm going to quit lusting so much, and I'm, I won't look at porn, and I won't do this, and I won't do that. And uh, Go back to, do you, to restoring that hope that when you see him, you'll be like him. And that's not just the, in, in heaven, because the more you see him and experience him and perceive him now by the Holy Spirit, and the more you see his lordship and his present reign, the more you'll be like him now until we see him perfectly in the age to come and are, and are devoid of our sin nature and, we're, and the sanctification process is finished. But go back and restore that hope by spending time with God. That's what spiritual disciplines are for. They're to, you know, you're not supposed to have your daily quiet time you have to have your daily encounter with the power of the Holy One, with the power of the King, with the power of His resurrection, so that every day you can say Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the life that I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God. And faith is not intellectual assent in some Greekified, modern, theoretical way. Faith is trusting in, clinging to, relying on, following, entering into his death by taking up your cross and denying yourself. Faith is a relational word that says where he is, that's where I'll be. It's not intellectual assent to, the, to a statement of faith or something. 
It's, it's that and so much more. So uh, anyway, at the great day of the feast, Jesus cries out, if anyone's thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Great idea. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. By the way, I don't think that when the Bible says that whoever drinks of him will never thirst again, that it means you'll never thirst again. <laughs> oh, whoa, whoa. What? Folks, take the Bible literally. I mean, think it means you'll never be able to actually thirst for anyone else or anything else again. You'll always want another drink of, of the true water. And all the other kinds of drinks, whether they be alcohol, sugar, procrastination, or whatever kind of thing you want to drink of, you just won't be able to stand drinking of it anymore. It'll be putrefied in comparison to the pure water of Christ. Anyway, if anyone drinks of me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke about your 12-step doctrines of faith. Oh, no, wait, he spoke this about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in the King James, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, that's a really interesting thing, because what does it mean by the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified? Some people will say, based on another passage we're going to hopefully get to today, is, is that clock right? Okay. Uh, so somebody move it back about eight. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> 25 minutes. So um, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit was not yet given? That's kind of an interesting statement, right? Because number one, all through the Old Testament, people like Moses, Elijah, Elisha, and so forth, raised the dead, part of the Red Sea, prophesied, spoke the word of God. When, when David was summing up his ministry at the end of his life, he said that, that uh, he, his tongue was the pen of a ready writer that he wrote by the Spirit of God, the Psalms, so forth. So, what is, you know, the Spirit was certainly given, but not in the sense that it was after he was glorified at Pentecost. That's why a number one focus of Satan's strategy is to try to keep God's wonderful people from experiencing the, the power of Pentecost. Keep it abstract. Keep it on, keep it on your power. Keep it, keep it from experiencing what the book of Acts was all about and is to be still all about. There's nothing in the Bible to, to allude to the fact that anything changed. Now, what does it mean that the Holy Spirit was not yet glorified or given because Jesus was not yet glorified? When Jesus himself, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and he gave of his anointing to the apostles, much like the Holy Spirit that was on Moses uh, came off of him and, 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 and distributed itself among the 70 elders of Israel, and they prophesied. Jesus gave them a portion of his unlimited anointing when he sent them out in Matthew 10 and in Luke 9 and Luke 10. And they cast out demons, and they healed the sick, and they raised the dead. And they prophesied in his name. And yet, what he's talking about is, is supposed to be something greater than that. Not less than that. 
In what way is it greater? Lots of ways. Number one, it's no longer going to be limited to a few of priests and prophets and so forth, but all God's people are going to be priests. The priesthood of all believers is one of the most precious doctrines in Scripture. You can know the Lord, and you are to do all the things a priest did. Based on the one great sacrifice of our holy high priest, Jesus Christ, you are to be a, like Ezra, a priest, Ezra 7.10, for Ezra had set his heart. He'd he'd made up his mind that this is what his life was going to be about. Now, every Christian is called to this. You're a priest, and you are called. It's amazing how many Christians I minister to that have been Christians 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. They've hardly read through the Bible even a few times, let alone become scholars of it. Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, to practice it, and to teach his commandments in Israel. You are supposed to be the teacher of the world. That's what God has called every Christian to, not to sit in pews just, you know, I'm glad you sit and listen, but I'm hoping to equip you to go out and preach to someone else. Based on years and hours and days and weeks and years of sitting at Christ's feet, listening to his word, wrestling with scripture, looking up the Greek, meditating on major themes of the Bible, asking God, crying out to God to give you grace to find help in time of need and make you like Christ in every way. And that's not just his character ways, that's also the anointing and power of his ministry. And for too long, we've separated that. Unfortunately, sad to say, but for a number of reasons we can't go into here, a lot of Pentecostals and advocates of the Holy Spirit have been known for their sexual immorality, for their financial immorality, and all other kinds of things. Frankly, the radio and TV ministry Christians, are they're a sewer. Both among the non-Pentecostals and the Pentecostals. The entire evangelical subculture has become kind of a make a name for ourselves, advance ourselves kind of deal. And it's, it's, it's disgusting. You are supposed to be Ezra. You're a priest. First Peter 2, 9, God has made us a kingdom of priests. He's quoting Exodus 9, 5, and 6. You're, right? And God, by the that's why Pentecost was so different. That's what, what Peter said when they said, you guys are drunk, and it's the only word, it's the only time the New Testament uses the word uh, glucose, which means cheap syrupy wine, and we actually use the word glucose in English to mean uh, sugar, uh, you know, sugar uh, the kind of sugar that your body turns all the food you eat into. But it meant cheap syrupy wine that was brought to market quicker for winos by extra, adding extra yeast and extra sugar and so forth. And everywhere else, in the, in the, every other reference to wine in the New Testament is the Greek word oino, which means aged, fermented, long-term alcoholic wine that had, to be, that had to be aged and fermented by people who really knew what they were doing over several years. What they're accusing the apostles of is you guys are the kind of winos that'll just go for two bucks and buy Mad Dog 2020, or some of you probably were worldly enough to know what I'm talking about, Boone's Farm, or I don't really know the, 
I can sort of know the popular cheap wines that there were 50 years ago, but whatever they have today, oh, um, what do you call them things? Wine coolers, you know, cheap, syrupy, sugary stuff that little girls drink. That's, they're accusing them of being winos. I love it. The first, the first line of, of the first Christian sermon to begin to fulfill the Great Commission was, these men are not drunk as you suppose. <laughs> I figured it out, can only get better from there. <laughs> it's only, it's nine, and his only defense was, it's too early in the morning for that. <laughs> it's only 9 o'clock, give us till noon. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, what, and, and then from there, the, you know, he explodes the whole gospel on there. scene. All right, so... This is John 7. This is what he's talking about in John 7. The, the Holy Spirit was going to come in a much greater way. It was going to be among all God's people. And all of them would do the greater works. Jesus said, greater works than I do shall you do. John 14, I've got to hurry up. John 14, 15, and 16 is the second uh, primary discourse that, that Jesus speaks about the Holy Spirit. And you can read those for yourself. And I put it, when it says CF, that means compare. Put a couple extra scriptures in there. But here's the context. The, th- the three synoptic gospels, meaning scenes in a similar way, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, when they cover the Passover supper, they cover G- uh, Jesus instituting the Lord's Supper or communion or Eucharist. They cover his prediction that Peter would deny him three times and that he would be restored and, and then ter- strengthen his brethren. And they, uh, they cover Judas Iscariot's betrayal of Jesus, right? John covers none of that. In John 13, he starts with Jesus girding himself with a towel and washing the disciples' feet. And then he goes into a great discourse in the last part of John 13, all the way through John 16, about, I'm about to go be with the Father and I am not going to leave you as orphans. I'm, nothing's going to change, except I'm going to do everything that I've been doing in your midst by the Holy Spirit. And if you got it right about the Holy Spirit, it'll actually be even better than having Jesus physically right there with you. So if we expect less, then we're not expecting rightly. And he says he'll bring into our remembrance. Now, there's a modern idea that, that he only brought into our remembrance and led and guided the church and the truth till the scripture was written because that's how they remembered and wrote the gospels accurately and so forth. And it certainly includes that. But it's never, there's no suggestion in the scripture that it's limited to this. He will still bring into your remembrance. I always say, just read the Bible through once, get filled with the Holy Spirit, and then you're all set. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> You know, I, I don't know what I would do at my Bible studies at Wright State and everywhere else and sharing the gospel and so forth if the Holy Spirit wasn't constantly bringing to my remembrance hundreds of scriptures that I memorized as a young Christian. And if you don't have a system where you're memorizing three, four, or five scriptures a week and that you're adding to that year after year so that you have three, four, or 5,000 scriptures memorized, I don't know what you're thinking Christianity is. That needs to be like a big part of every Christian's life. I, I used to smoke cigarettes, and three-by-five note cards are about the size of a pack of cigarettes. So that's like when I became a Christian, my, 
The cigarettes went out of my blue jean jacket, and the 3 by 5 note cards went in, and the pack just kept getting thicker. So then I started having separate packs. And uh, then I had a whole carton. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, you know, that's what I did when, they, you know, when I was shoveling stones, and they would take the bucket up to put it on the roof. I had like five minutes till the bucket came back. I memorized two or 3,000 scriptures in one summer by every night filling out three by five note cards so I wouldn't waste that five minutes after the one minute that I filled the bucket up. Certainly you have think, ways in your life that you could start memorizing scripture. And the Holy Spirit will help you in that. I was a French fry when I came to Christ and the Holy Spirit will restore your intelligence to what it was meant to be. I wish I could go into more of this. A uh, couple other things I want to comment on in that, this section is the word helper that he uses all through John 14, 15, and 16 is the Greek word parakletos. Now, interestingly enough, the three most commonly used literal kind of equivalent translations, New American Standard, English Standard Version, and uh, New King James Version, all translate that helper. But if you start expanding from there to the disciples' literal translation and to um, expanded Bibles and the Orthodox Jewish Bible and the Complete Jewish Bible, and you go back to Young's literal translation and Wycliffe and Geneva Bible and start comparing all the excellent Bibles that have been made in English, you'll see four words for that. Helper, comforter, counselor, and advocate. Now, anytime you see a Greek word that's translated by several English words in good translations, it's an automatic clue. It should send off something that goes, meh, 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 alert. That is too rich of a Greek word for one English word. So like when it says abide in me, which is Greek word meno, some translations say continue in, remain in, and so forth, because it's too rich of a word for one word. And the, the word helper, parakletos, came from the 5th century when it was used in, uh, in the Greek culture as to your lawyer, someone who walked alongside with you to give you counsel and to, to navigate your, your affairs. And what Jesus is saying is, I will never leave you and forsake you, which the Bible promises many times, and the way I'm going to not do it is by giving you the Holy Spirit. I'll be a very present help in time of trouble. You can go to court and be dead right, but if you don't have someone who knows the ways of the court and the law, you're still loose. And the Holy Spirit knows the ways of the Lord, the kingdom, the law, everything. And you need to be filled and refilled and refilled. I believe that you, when you get baptized in the Spirit, you get a prayer language called speaking in tongues. I believe there are some people that get baptized in the Spirit who don't speak in tongues just because they don't know they could and don't know the value and importance thereof. However, one thing you need to understand is the same people who got that, which is over 3,000 people in Acts 2, though in Acts 4, when they were threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus, they were commanded, don't spread his name anymore in the city. 
and they said that wonderful Acts 4.20, whether it's right to obey God or man, you guys decide, but we can't stop speaking or thing, or the things we've seen and heard. It's the only time in the Bible that the Bible ad, uh, advocates an I can't help it philosophy. They're basically saying, we can't help it. <laughs> and uh, nowhere else in the Bible does I can't help it going to cut it. But... Uh, they say we can't help it, and then they go back to John Mark's mother's house, and they pray with all the, and they say, "Lord, take note of their threats, and grant that your bond servants may speak your word boldly, while you stretch forth your hand to confirm your word with signs and weather wonders." And it says, when they got done praying, the whole room was shaken. I would be glad to fix plaster cracks and everything if the, you know, let's do that, Lord. Uh, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak the word of God with boldness. I suggest to you that if you're not speaking the word of God with boldness, instead of trying to get all guilt manipulated that I need to go speak the word of God with boldness, get more filled with the Holy Spirit. And what you need to understand about Acts 4 is everyone that was in that room was in Acts 2. So they were already filled with the Holy Spirit, spoke in tongues, and had amazing things happening, and the same people, it says they got filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, what does that tell you? It tells you that Pastor Greg, like you, leaks badly. God fills me up, but I'm like sort of like a colander. Maybe if I work hard enough, I can keep it stopped up for a while, but it's leaking. So I need to get filled and filled, and I need to drink again and again and again until rivers of living water are flowing for me. Another thing I would encourage you to, to think about is if you're drying up, you can't keep filling up something that's not pouring out. The, the anointing of the Holy Spirit, the, the purpose for prayer meetings is to go out and share. Well, let's move on. Um, lastly, the, the, uh, the third primary discourse is repeated in Luke 24, 44 through 53, and Acts 1, 1 through 11, and it's Jesus uh, just before he goes to be with the Father. So Jesus at the Feast of Booths, the great day of the feast, fulfilling what that's all about prophetically. Jesus as the, at the Last Supper. And then Jesus just before the ascension. That's where the that's the passages that tell us about the purpose of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Why? Because he's expecting the Holy Spirit to be on the church in a way greater than it was on Jesus. And until we have that, we might as well as confess before God we're sub-biblical and, and work toward that. I'm all for admitting this is not a greatly anointed church or we're not greatly on fire and we're not greatly mature. But if we're not at least seeking to go there, there's no hope to get there. If we're teaching all that stopped, what hope have we got? You have to know where you're going and what you're shooting at to have any chance to zero in on the target. Now, there's that phrase, promise my father, stay in the city until, so forth. Um, Jesus, Acts, if you look at the wording from Acts 1, 4, and 5 carefully, you'll see that the promise of the father and being baptized in the Holy Spirit are one and the same thing. 
And that when that happens, you'll receive power. Dunamis is the Greek word. And it means it's the same word we get dynamite, dynamic, and dynamo from. And it means you'll receive not just incredible motivation. People always ask, well, you know, how can you keep up the, this and this and this and this and that? I can't. Honestly, it, I have to cry out to God to help me and to fill me and so forth because most mornings when I first get up, I don't even care. <laughs> I, I start thinking about my appointment book and going, I think I'll just go back to bed and ignore it. <laughs> you know, I, I once asked a guy why he missed Sunday church, and he said, well, when the, the alarm went off, I was laying there in bed, and I felt like the Holy Spirit spoke to me that he wanted me to go back to bed. And, and I said, I feel like the Holy Spirit speaks that to me every morning, <laughs> but I'm not listening. <laughs> I, I hope, hopefully, you. I mean, it's like, you know, the truth is you. the Christian life isn't difficult. It's impossible. It's completely impossible. That's why Paul is astounded at the Corinthians and says, are you not walking like mere men? Because when you give up your own strength, when you're not trusting in yourself, but trusting in the Lord, when you encounter the power of the Holy Spirit the way it's meant to be encountered at Pentecost, and when you go through a process that the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil, and at the end of that, he came out in the power of the Spirit, and when you live there, there will be signs and wonders. There will be motivation. There will be grace to keep going. There will be grace to be properly motivated. And you will constantly be growing in grace and power and anointing and wisdom. And when you store up the scriptures every day in your heart, there will be an accumulative process of sanctification and maturation that will bring forth fruit to the glory of God and will change the world. And that is the purpose of Pentecost.